speak about an English poet, John Keats, and one of his poems, one of his important and rather beautiful poems, Ode to a Nightingale. And I feel both the person of Keats and the poetry of Keats is something which very much relates to a spiritual awareness, to a perceptive understanding of life and its communication through perhaps the richest or one of the richest forms of language, namely the poem. And part of the reason that I have chosen uh, this particular poem and poet is because of a personal long-standing love and affection for Keats, an acknowledgement of a short and unusual life and for what he endeavours to render and communicate through the power of the word, through the power of, of language. And in order to understand this poem, Ode to a Nightingale, it rather has to be understood in the light of the poet. And recently, I was in Italy, in Rome, and I had there the opportunity to visit the, the Spanish steppes, the Piazza de Spagna, where Keats died. And Keats himself was born just outside London in um, October 1795. And he died in Rome in a small room in the, on the edge or besides the Spanish steps in 1821 when he was 25 years old. And in making this visit to his room something which in a way having this long-standing affection I've looked forward to for, for quite some time and in Going, going there, I went with a, a friend, a Joya, and one goes up a flight of s stairs, and one com first comes to the one small room. I would imagine it would be probably about ten feet by ten feet, which is now has been converted into a small library, photo stats of some of his letters, some of the originally published books and so forth, and where people who have a love of Keats um, uh, visit. And then, in, and then in the next room, there's a very, a very small room, and it is in this room that Keats, who suffered from tuberculosis, uh, died at this very young age. And the poem communicates very very sensitively uh, human suffering and all that can be featured and highlighted in the course of suffering and something which is transcendent to it. And to get a, something of a sense for that, it's perhaps to get a sense of, of Keats himself.
Keats was born, as I mentioned, out just outside London and was one of five children. When he was nine years old, his mother, his, sorry, when he was nine years old, his father died. And a few years later, also from tuberculosis, his mother died when he was 15 years of age. And upon leaving school, Keats had been accepted into Guy's Hospital, one of the major London hospitals, to uh, um, train to work or to assist surgeons. Called this, his job was called to be an apothecary. And basically the responsibility for these 13, 14-year-old uh, boys was to witness the operations and then afterwards the patient would have the responsibility of taking care of the pa patient and particularly bandaging the patient up. And one rather has to, we rather have to cast our mind's eye back to what hospitals were like in London, much of it desperately poor, working in a hospital without anaesthetic, with very little, if any, concept of hygiene, no concept of infectious diseases being easily, or very little, easily transmitted in appalling working conditions. And for this, he, and as other young men were at that time, subjected to five years, from the age of about 14 to 19, to train to be an apothecary and to qualify in that particular role. So one can give some sense both of the suffering of losing his mother and his father, of working in such conditions over the years, the kind of impact upon his life experience and his whole view and perceptions of life, having to witness this appalling suffering and some of it, of course, right there in the operating theatre particularly as is referred to hard enough when seeing grown men screaming and suffering with the pain but when it was actually having to witness amputations with regard to children so all of this is in Keats formative years out of this, these impressions registering in this young and bright bright mind and a, an unusually sensitive mind, he began in his late teens to write poetry. Finding time to, to move away from the city to be by himself and to write. In this period of time, the suffering which as it were dogged him and, and was so much an emphasis in, in his life was such that one of his brothers Tom also got this tuberculosis and in the last months Keats, John Keats, his, the brother, decided, felt out of his love for the brother to take care of, of his brother who was so obviously dying and they actually went to live not so far from here in a small terraced house in Devon in, in Tainmouth which is 10 or 15 miles from here, placed by the sea. And it's 
almost for sure that in this time this tubercular bacilli, the actual germ which gets transmitted often from phlegm and from you know normal kind of contact which which can take place it seems it then went to Keats himself during this during this period of time he nursed his brother until uh, his brother's death and then a few months later out of his experiences both in the hospital and of course with the witnessing and caring for his brother Keats wrote this poem this ode to a nightingale and this was in the time before this this illness had actually taken a full grip and hold upon himself Keats was in London his time now he's about 22 or 23 years old he was in London and he had to travel from the centre of London by stagecoach, you know, the cheapest mode of uh, travelling, from the centre of London through to Hampstead, which is now, of course, a very fashionable area to live in, and, in, and it was on a bitterly cold February night. The bacilli, the, the, the germ, had already taken root in this particular person. And when I'm thinking of this, I'm talking about this, you know, today in, uh, in India, it is said that some 8% of the population get tuberculosis. And Keats travelled from the centre on this stagecoach through to a, a house in uh, Hampstead on a February uh, night. And while there, staying with a, a man named Brown, uh, a friend of his, he began coughing during the night. And he turned to his friend Brown and, and, sa and said to him, please bring me light a candle. And his friend lit the candle, brought the candle over to John Keats. Keats looked and with the light of the flame looked at the handkerchief and saw there were spots of blood in the handkerchief. And his, and his words were, on seeing this was, this these drops of blood is my death warrant. He knew that once that had begun, then there was no cure for this, that there was, it was simply a process, a matter of time. As the time went by, it went from one drop of blood to communicate what this disease is like, which takes a hold. That, that as the time went by, there would be times when he was coughing up two cupfuls, three cupfuls of blood. Because the lung itself gets a puncture in it. There's a hole is in, a, in the lung and then there's blood pours through the lung and one is not only in danger, of course, of the lung actually collapsing but also actually choking to death. This is... This is, this is typical you know, of the kind of process which takes place with regard to the disease of tuberculosis right through to the end. And, and the thing with it was, too, that people didn't realise how 
easily and very quickly would it would actually get transmitted. During this period, during this period of time of, of having to work with and deal with this, he had a friend who's become something of a household name in uh, terms of the lives of the poets. Uh, friend, a, a young woman friend who he met when she was uh, 18 years old, named Fanny Braun. And during the, during the period of time of Keats undergoing this illness while living, living in London, his friend Brown took care of him and his uh, girlfriend, uh, Fanny Braun, would come to see him. And he said, to, he wrote to her in a letter that with what he was experiencing, he would endeavour as much as possible to be patient with his ills. And that phrase has always rather struck me, to be patient with his ills, as much as, as he says, as much as he, he is able to do. And, and it's one of those things, and I've noticed in my um, contact, particularly when I was in the East with people who are um, sick or dying, that the need for connection and communication, just as it is at the very beginning of life, through touch and affection, how we need that when we come into this world, it's in the same way as it were, actually, when we go out of the world. Even if nothing too much is said, there's something, even with human beings who are extraordinarily clear and have depth of underst understanding, and I think of a number of those that I've known in the East who were in the, the monkhood, that when it came to actually the last period of time of the life in which the breath is moving towards its final closure, the need and the love and the appreciation of affection and communication and acknowledgement from other human beings makes that final stage of life and that final passage of life so much easier. Genuinely so much easier. And Keith, out of concern for uh, his uh, fr friend Fanny Braun, um, such that she would come frequently, daily, in fact, though he frequently wasn't well enough to see her. And so sometimes she would leave him a note, and sometimes the note was simply two words, good night. Leave that note, leave it under his, his pillow, and as he would remark in his replies to her and in his contact with her, sometimes just those words were sufficient to help him through the long night. And this ode to a nightingale is all about this the spirit of a human being dealing with a life-death reality and working through the night with it. And then I would, I would like, if I may, to um, read you the poem, give some brief commentary on the main themes of the verses through this uh, poem and then in um, conclusion to that just relate to you the very last period and what is another friend of his Joseph Seven um, said of the last period of life of Keats and what Keats has as his epitaph on the on his gravestone in Rome and 
Ode to a, Ode to a Nightingale, written in uh, April of 1819. So he'd be about 23, 24 years old at this time. My heart aches, and a drowsy numbness pains my sense, as though of hemlock I had drunk, or emptied some dull opiate to the drains, one minute past, and Leith wards had sunk. It is not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, like winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green and shadows numberless, sings of summer in full-throated ease. Keats, this poet, is writing of a man in hospital, in a ward, who is dying. It's in the summer, it's in the night hours, and while lying there he hears the nightingale singing. hears it through his pain. And in the next verse, O oh for a drought of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and provocal song and sunburnt mirth. O oh for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrene, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple-stained mouth, that I might drink and leave the world unseen and with thee fade away into the forest dim. In the second verse, he is saying very briefly, Oh, for a glass of wine. Oh, for a wine which will intoxicate my mind, which will remove me from this pain this numbness and this heartache which I am ex experiencing so that he can leave this ward, this world of pain and fade away into the forest with the nightingale. And then the, the next verse and one which I, if I may say, I remember reading this and, and, and this particular verse and this particular poem having quite some degree of uh, impact in my personal life. And there are a number of times in the East when I was there, once it was over, what, a ten-year um, peri period, and when I was in the monkhood, and how at times one would become you know, sick once through, uh, rather, through a rather severe snake bite on one, one occasion and wasn't quite sure what the outcome would be, another occasion through food poisoning. And in that period of time, each one, just there's a certain uncertainty, and one starts the day off, and it just seems to be a very ordinary sort of day, a nothing special day of living in the forest, living in the, living in the monastery. And then something, something happens, and that whole assumption of life, of continuity and rhythm and tomorrow, is all under doubt, and there's a fear, a very human fear, which, which accompanies all of that. 
And in this next verse, Keats is com communicating the pain. And speaking and to the nightingale, he says, Fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou amongst the leaves has never known, the weariness, the fever, and the fret. Here where men sit and hear each other groan, where the palsy shakes a few sad last grey hairs, where youth grows pale and spectre thin and dies. Where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. With that intensity of pain which is which is there, it seems that beauty and love seems to make no inroads, seems that hard to have access to that which one loves and appreciates and cherishes in life. And then there's a sudden change taking place in the heart and in the and in the mind of of the poet. And Keats, in remembering this is based on his years of observation of dealing with people in enormous suffering in the hospital and in his own personal suffering, says, Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, meaning he won't touch the wine, doesn't want any substitute for reality. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, Though the dull brain perplexes and retards, already with thee tender is the night, and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her, st her starry phase. But here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown through virtuous glooms and winding mossy ways. Dismisses the idea of taking of resorting to the wine and just wants to see and acknowledge what the reality is in that night of the moon and the stars and the, and the breeze and the light which is coming through and just experience that as it is using his and then he goes, goes on and then he under begins to see something more I cannot see what flowers are at my feet nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs but in embalmed darkness guess each sweet wherewith this seasonable month endows the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild, white hawthorn and the pastoral eglantine, fast fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child, the coming musk rose full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer's eve. And he is saying in this fifth verse, I can't see this though, because it's night time. I can't see all this, the sheer wonder of all this which is in the nature. And so it's his own poetic and creative imagination which helps him to get a sense for something, even though his eyes don't have contact with that, with that wondrous world of nature which is around him. Darkling I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, 
called him soft names in many amused rhyme to take into the air like quiet breath. Now more than ever it seems rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. Now his mind turns to his own situation more, sometimes wishing for the end, wishing for, for death, even though the nightingale continues to pour forth its soul abroad in, in such an ecstasy, which would still go on even when he had gone into the earth, become a sod. Thou was not born for death, immortal bird, no hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth when sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn, the same that oftentimes has, charmed magic casements opening on the foam, of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. And here Keats is speaking of seeing through the, as it were, the nightingale as a kind of archetype of eternity, of immortality, of deathlessness. And though he says there's been generations of people have born and died, this song, this has been pouring forth and has been heard by emperor and clown and was heard by Ruth in the, in the Bible her, and will continue to be heard. And so it becomes a representative, representative of something which is sustained th throughout all the changes. <coughs> and then finally, in coming to the final verse, Keats writes, Forlorn, the very word is like a bell, to toll me back from thee to my soul self. Adieu, the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu, thy plaintive anthem fades. Past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music, do I wake or sleep? So while lying there in the bed and amidst the, the pain and, and the heartache, the nightingale moves off its perch and moves through the meadows and across the stream. And the poet, in his pain, says goodbye. And in the fading away of the the voice of the nightingale. He wonders whether it was all, was it a vision or a waking dream? The nightingale has gone and all that it re represents. Did I see this? Or am I asleep? In September, of 1820, 
Keats was advised while in London to leave London and to find a warmer climate. And he took, with his friend Joseph Seven, he took a boat, a cargo boat, from Gravesend, near a, a port not far from London, to Rome. And it was a very difficult journey. And that trip, what we would consider, of course, a very short trip, and that time took five weeks. They arrived, the ship went first to Naples. When they, when they arrived there in Naples, there was a quarantine on because, the, because of typhus. And so they had to spend another ten days or, or more waiting on this boat. All the time, of course, Keats is in terrible pain and, and bleeding and very weak. And from Naples, they arrived at the sp at the, at in uh, Rome and at the S Spanish Steps. In this last period, there was still, amongst friends, a kind of an optimism, a hope that their friend Keats would, would survive the winter, would survive this disease and, and would prevent the collapse of his lungs. And one of them wrote t to him, and in, a and in a letter to him said such very touching words and certainly a reflection of the, poet, of the poem itself. It said, to he wrote to Keats, Thou shalt return with thy friend the nightingale. And through the winter, uh, the last period of, of Keats's uh, life, his friend Seven stayed with, stayed with him day, day in and day out. And Seven wrote of the last, of the last days, th on January the 11th, this is some five, six weeks before the death of Keats. Little did I think what a task of affliction and danger I had undertaken, for I only thought of the beautiful mind of Keats, my attachment to him, and his convalescence. He has now given up all thoughts, hopes, or even wish for recovery. His mind is in a state of peace from the final leave he has taken of this world and all his future hopes. This has been an immense weight for him to rise from. He remains quiet and submissive under his heavy fate. For three weeks I have never left him. I have sat up all night. I have read to him nearly all day and even in the night. I light a fire, make his breakfast, and am sometimes obliged to cook, make his bed, and sweep the room. And then on February the 12th, this is about some 11 days before his death, he wrote, I have kept him alive by these means week after week. He, has refu he had refused all food, but I tried him every way. I left no excuse. Many times I have prepared his meal, six times over, and kept from him the trouble I have had doing it. I have not been able to leave him, that is, I have not dared to do it, but when he slept. And then the day before his death. I have nothing to break this dreadful solitude but letters. Day after day, night after night, here I am by our poor dying friend. My spirits, my intellect and my health are breaking down. I can get no one to change with me, 
no one to relieve me, all run away. And here's this, again, this sense of um, this gesture by his close friend of staying very, very close to Keats, day in and day out, night in and night out, being a friend, being supportive to someone undergoing the, this large, last stage of the, of the living process. And it says something of, the, of, of Keats himself, of the friendship and the love which, which he inspired. And when it came to the very came to the very end and he passed and he just passed very quietly away he requested before his death that there would be an epitaph a, a one sentence on his grave uh, at, the, at the Protestant uh, cemetery in Rome and what Keats requested was very simple and very rather a profound and beautiful line expressing something of a genuine understanding. The line which is on his grave there is, Here lies one whose name was writ in water. May all beings be in touch with the poetry of life. May all beings hear the song of the nightingale. May all beings live in an integrated harmony. Let's have a three or four minute quiet period together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.